What is up, everybody? Welcome back on this Tuesday, the 4th of April, 2023. The last 24 hours have been pretty exciting. So we're going to go over a few macro stories. Not so much on Bitcoin. I've been covering Bitcoin a lot uh, over the last week or two weeks even. Um, and now we're going, we're shifting right back into some of the macro stuff. So we have an article about everything seems to be hitting the fan at once. De-dollarization, de-globalization, sanctions, war talk. So we're going to read through a story that details out some pretty interesting facts that when you put them all together, they look quite compelling, but we're going to go through that. Um, okay. Bitcoinandmarkets.com is the website. I write a weekly newsletter that goes out on Mondays. So make sure you're subscribed to the free newsletter there. There's also ways to support my content, bitcoinandmarkets.com. I am writing the next issue of Market Pro, which is my premium newsletter. This is going to be an update on the Bitcoin price, as well as a detailed investigation, I guess you could say, into the oil markets. What does this OPEC cut mean? And does this change my fundamental perspective on the next couple years for oil? Sign up, bitcoinandmarkets.com to get that market pro. That should be coming out either later today or tomorrow. Uh, I have a few games with the kids. They are getting into all the athletics and things now. And uh, so we have a couple games tonight. I don't know if I'll be able to get that market pro out tonight, but it will be coming out ASAP. Okay, that's bitcoinandmarkets.com. Let's roll into this first story here on Zero Hedge. The headline is Labor Market Finally Cracks. Job openings, hires crash to lowest since May of 2021. Miss every estimate. For months, we have been warning that at a time when the U.S. economy is careening into a hard landing recession, the manipulated, seasonally adjusted, and politically goal-seek job openings data released is part of the DOL's JOLTS report is sheer rubbish. And then they link to a bunch of their articles that they did. Today, the BLS finally got the memo. Okay, so all of the previous, you know, the last year's worth of JOLTS data and BLS numbers and all that have all been rubbish, sheer rubbish, quote unquote, sheer rubbish. But now all of a sudden they get the memo and they're right. See, that's the problem with thinking that everything is manipulated all the time. If everything is manipulated all the time, then this is manipulated too. Just because your broken clock is right twice a day, then you can say that it, your clock is right. Well, that's sheer rubbish, actually. Okay, let's continue with this. With consensus already expecting a sizable drop in February job openings from 10.82 million to 10.5 million, what the BLS reported instead was a doozy. In February, there were just 9.9 million job openings, the first sub 10 million print since May of 2021. Worse, had the BLS not drastically slashed the January number, the drop would have been almost 1 million job openings. Instead, the January job openings was cut from 10.5 million, or sorry, cut to 10.5 million from 10.8 million originally reported. This means that the two-month drop in job openings was 1.3 million, the second highest on record 
surpassed just by the economic shutdown during the COVID crash. And that is pretty crazy. So let's take a look at this chart. And for you guys that are new to the show, uh, I do these live streams on YouTube if you're watching there, uh, which you can also catch the replays. You know, the live streams stay up on YouTube forever. On Twitter, at Ansel Lindner. On Twitch, Bitcoin and Markets. And on Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. That's where I spend most of my time during the day posting, chatting, commenting, all of that stuff. Oh, and before I forget, we do a monthly competition to predict the price at the end of the month for Bitcoin. And I just put the form up for April. May, I think there's going to be a few changes to the competition. But if you guys are interested in taking part in that, go to Bitcoin, oh, sorry, uh, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets, and you'll find the link to the form there. Okay, let's get back to this. Job openings. You can see a big dip here. This red bar on the bottom right that's dipping down to 13.03 or 1.3 million jobs is two-month change. You can see that's the largest since the COVID crash and going back all the way to 2000. There's nothing even close to that. So reverberations. That's one of the themes over the last couple of years on the show is there was a huge supply disruption, the biggest supply disruption. Well, not even supply, but economic disruption since World War II. And we're going to have reverberations back and forth. So we had a huge amount of job cuts. Then we had fiscal policy response, job gains, and now we're swinging back towards job cuts. Where does this end? Now, just looking at this chart, though, it's understandable that with all of these recent huge job losses, the change in the job openings, I guess you should say, or I should say, um, over the last year, it does feel like a massive recession is underway. But it's explained by back in 2020 and 2021, all the job increases in job openings. So there's this big whipsaw effect that when the whipsaw is coming back down, it feels like a hard landing. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a hard landing. Other things have uh, perverted or distorted the, the price signals from like interest rate, the curve inversions that have been so dramatic for so long now. It's probably going on record length of the interest rate curve inversions. But that is, we have the highest inflation in 40 years quote-unquote inflation, CPI, in 40 years, that is going to change a lot of these signals that are the market is putting out there. So you have to be able to look at what the market is telling you and have a framework to interpret what the market is telling you. But the general idea that I've been going with for the last four or five years that has not gone wrong yet is that we are returning to a post-GFC normal, low growth, low inflation, end of a long credit cycle, we're stuck in deflationary times. If we do have small spikes of inflation that's temporary, it's going to return to low growth low inflation because you can't fix a debt problem with more debt. The end of this is deflation. And so in that, we have a monetary shortage and people run to monetary alternatives. And what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a monetary alternative for the 21st century. Okay, let's continue. After five consecutive beats, of expectations and an unprecedented 27 beats in the last 29 months. February is when the BLS 
seasonally adjusted BS finally came crashing down. Okay, I mean, that that should trigger alarm bells or at least bias bells, you know, on your spidey sense going. So it's all BS until it agrees with you. My thing is that it is a good faith effort. It's not right. It's not perfect. But most of these U.S. economic data points are good faith efforts and they get seasonally adjusted, you know, on an ongoing basis and they get revised on an ongoing basis. And yeah, there could be a certain percentage of political bias in the numbers, but they're fairly accurate. That is what I'm going with. And so when I see numbers like today, I see numbers like CPI going from almost 2% a month to zero. I'm not clouded by my bias saying, well, they're just lying to me. So I can't believe it went to zero. I can't believe that. No, I believe generally that they are directionally correct and fairly accurate. That covers everything. But if you come out of the gate saying it's all BS, then when it agrees with you, it's BS, right? So which is it? All right, let's continue. And not only was the February print below all sell-side estimates, but it was the third biggest miss of expectations on record. Wow, that's pretty impressive. According to the BLS, the largest decreases in job openings were in professional and business services, healthcare and social assistance, and transportation, warehousing, and utilities. The number of job openings increased in construction, okay, and in arts, entertainment, and recreation. So that's interesting. It, it They increased in construction. That could be signaling that there's certain industries that are coming back to the U.S. and you got to build those industries up, right? You got to rebuild the factories, rebuild some of the networks, whether they're rail networks or road networks, whatever. You got to rebuild some of that because we have exported and offshored our industrial base to the rest of the world during globalization. And during a period of deglobalization, we'll have to build that back up. So it's very interesting that even this is somewhat showing that construction is fairly resilient in the United States. Okay. The long overdue plunge in job openings means that there are now just nine or sorry, 3.995 million more jobs than unemployed workers down sharply from last month's 5.13 million pre-adjustment, which has now been adjusted to 4.8 million. Okay. I, I think that they're those th that's all jobs from bus boys at your local restaurant to delivery drivers, minimum wage jobs. But if you're out there and you get laid off of a job that's making $100,000 a year and you try to go out there and replace that income right now, you're not going to be able to. You're going to get need to get two or three jobs that are lower paid because these 3.9 million job openings in excess of unemployed workers is because none of them are paid enough. This is one thing that Jeff Schneider said a couple years back, which uh, I was like instantly agreed with. And that is, there's no such thing as a labor shortage. There's a wage shortage. You're not willing to pay people enough to attract workers in. So if there's this many more jobs, what does that tell you? That tells you that they're not paying enough or else they would find the supply that they needed. Okay, uh, said otherwise, there are just 1.67 job openings for every unemployed worker, down from 1.86 last month. 
Needless to say, this number still has a ways to drop to revert to its pre-COVID levels around 1.2, but the trend is now clearly lower. All right, guys, breaking in here on the edit because I noticed something as I was going back through and editing stuff, and that is this all squares, okay? If we have a labor, sorry, we have a wage shortage, this makes sense that we have all of these open positions. It also makes sense that the establishment survey differs from the household survey. The establishment survey measures jobs, payrolls. So if somebody has two jobs, it counts as two payrolls. Now the household survey counts employed people. And that survey has been showing more unemployment where the payroll survey has been showing extremely like record low levels of unemployment. Well, that's because everyone has second jobs out there. So see, these all, this all squares, all of these numbers, all of these payrolls, jobs, data, etc. all of this stuff squares if you consider that it is a good faith effort and it's generally accurate. Going back to this, if you are a broken clock, that's right, twice a day, you can't make these connections and you can never hope to understand what's going on out there in the market. All right, now I'm going to extrapolate and do an ad hoc here on what this means going forward. Uh, I see two solutions, only two solutions to this current economic situation regarding jobs. One is actual money printing and actual inflation. You raise the amount of money, that means that the wage shortage can be alleviated and people can get paid more and all of these job openings will tend to balance, okay? The other option is for actual prices to come down. Absolute deflation and prices coming down, this will make the wages offered more appropriate and more sustainable. And so that will then alleviate all of these job openings and relieve the need for second jobs and stuff because your wages are becoming more sustainable. So I think the first one is impossible because the Fed doesn't print money and the government doesn't print money in fiscal spending. So there's no way to actually print the money other than an expansion in economic activity leading to an expansion in credit. We are in a debt trap. That's not going to happen. We are going to post GFC normal of low growth, low inflation. There's no way to print our way out of this at this time. That is minus any sort of drastic change in the way money works. Like if the U.S. gets a CBDC in the next six to 12 months and starts really printing money, that's possible. But short of that, that way is impossible. So that leaves only option two. Prices will come down. They will come down hard and they will come down fast, and wages will then become more appropriate. So I hope that makes sense. Let's get back into the episode. Okay, looking at some of these things. All right, so that's it. That's all I have to say about these economic numbers. Um, again, the headline to this one is labor market finally cracks. All right, getting into the main story for today, at least this is what I think is the main story. Again, from Zero Hedge, some commodity producers are now being offered CNY, not dollars. And this is from Michael Every of Rabobank. I think he's a you know, columnist that puts these out regularly. Johnny's in his room building a bomb. Are words spoken by no responsible parent? Not even if they reassure bomb making is hard, so he won't be able to do it right. Yet global markets are watching as wires, fuses, solder, and the goods needed to make TNT are all assembled. Consider that the last few days, what the last few days have seen. 
more supply disruption from OPEC plus pushing oil up, which the White House claims it knew about in advance and which was apparently driven by its refusal to rebuild its strategic petroleum reserve at lower prices as pledged. Now, I did post a little video in Telegram about this concept, which I thought was fascinating. And writing the Market Pro letter, I did a little bit more research on this. So back in October, the White House put out an announcement. This is like a, an official declaration on their website saying that at between 67 and $72 a barrel, they would go back and fill up the strategic petroleum reserve. Well, what just happened on May 15th of last month? It dropped below $67 a barrel and no word from the White House. So very interesting. And then just a week later, we have this big OPEC decision to cut more of their quota production. So, I mean, it fits. It definitely fits. And you can see how these are strategic moves from all of these players in the market. I mean, what happens, though, if the U.S. quietly opens up oil production? And in the next couple of years, the U.S. is producing 15 million barrels a day or something. I mean... OPEC's going to lose market share, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I write about that in Market Pro. So make sure you guys go to BitcoinMarkets.com and check that out. A Russian national security doctrine for long-lasting hybrid war versus the U.S. and Europe. More articles on Chinese and U.S. war preparations, or lack of, as Graham Allison of the Thucydides Trap claims, American politics is driving towards a provoca provocation, provocation that China could not avoid, and that we are sliding into a catastrophic new conflict. So you know, I disagree heavily with Graham Allison. I've covered the Thucydides trap a long time ago here on the show. I cover it consist on a consistent basis. Uh, the Thucydides trap is a joke. It hasn't been correct throughout history, and it's not correct now. I, I don't know what else I want to say about this. I don't think that China and the U.S. are that close to war. But as we get closer and closer, it signifies deglobalization, okay? And deglobalization is not good for credit markets. Credit will contract globally, which they don't mention in this article that I remember. They don't mention that the result of de-dollarization is credit collapse, <laughs> which is very deflationary, okay? The EU call for de-risking supply chains vis-a-vis -vis China and China warns them not to. Singapore's PM calls for new ground rules so global trade can continue without decoupling. Now, when I first read this, I was like, I didn't hear this. So let me read that again. Singapore's PM calls for new ground rules so global trade can continue without decoupling. But with expectations, the playing field will be much less flat. And that, quote, we may end up on one side of the gulf or the other. And that's just the way the world is going to be, end quote. That's a pretty big declaration there. Uh, Singapore is ethnically Chinese, correct? I believe it's a majority ethnically Chinese. However, they are um, politically, I guess, not politically, but economically related to the United States more. So if they were picking a side, would they pick with the, Ch with the Chinese side or the U.S. side? Uh, probably the Chinese side is my guess. Okay, the Financial Times says, prepare for a multipolar currency world. 
noting the CEPR view that, quote, the renminbi can play a more important role in the future, even in the absence of full financial liberalization. This process would involve trade invoicing and settlements, central bank swap lines, and offshore renminbi markets. This would not lead to the renminbi overtaking the dollar, but rather to a multipolar world of key currencies, including the dollar, euro, and renminbi. And finally, India and Malaysia agreed to settle trade in INR. That's the Indian rupee. This daily, so this is his daily dispatch, I guess. This daily had already been saying shifts in trade invoicing could matter to the global financial architecture and yet that there is no Bretton Woods 3 system to replace the U.S. dollar. As IMF data underlined, it is top dog. And energy expert Anas something argues there is no global alternative to it for oil. There is no contradiction because if the dollar falls, it would be replaced by a global system, but with a market explosion. So yes, Bretton Woods 3 is something we've covered here on the show. It was kind of popularized by Zoltan Pozar of Credit Suisse. And I wonder if he is going to have a job. He'll probably get picked up by Zero Hedge or something. <laughs> but anyway, um, he was calling for Bretton Woods 3, mainly based around commodity backing currencies, but not monetary commodities, but like consumables. You know, there's a reason why oil doesn't back money because it's consumed. You know, there's a reason why that the gold has backed money and that's because it's not consumed. But anyway, uh, Bretton Woods 3, yeah, there's nothing on that front that I have seen of the, other than like the BRICS trying to announce their own new currency, which we covered yesterday. Yeah, and that's about it. Let's continue. The FT is right. Some commodity producers are now being offered CNY, not dollars. They aren't taking it yet because of technical difficulties, but they are talking about it. Ooh, talking about it. Yes, CNY is useless internationally as it doesn't have an open capital account. But as the CEPR note, what if PBOC offshore yuan swap lines to central banks for trade financing bridge that gap? Yes, CNY offers no assets like U.S. Treasuries, but a commodity exporter isn't a central bank and just wants to get paid. What if the CNY price is higher than the dollar one or the CNY is politically more acceptable in some locations? I mean, this is so far down the road. You know, it's not like this is going to happen within six months or a year or even in this market cycle, okay? The CNY is used for less than 1% of international transactions. It has like 1% of international reserves and you can't just switch it to being the global reserve currency within a short period of time, like a year. It will take five, 10, 20 years minimum. And what's the dollar doing in that time? It's not standing still. What's Bitcoin doing in that time? It's not standing still. They are so far behind. But the, these commentators, I mean, the CNY is so far behind, but these commentators are so far behind too. It's just like reading Zoltan. You know, Zoltan is, he's a linear thinker. He's thinking from uh, maybe a position 
that's a few years old and trying to project forward in a linear fashion. So not only is he wrong about the current situation, but he's totally missing the dynamics of what a market is for future prediction of the market. That's what I get when I'm reading this. So let's continue. Because commodity producers in emerging markets tend to be pivot points in the broader economy, if replicated, real trade flows could be redirected even more towards China and pricing in some commodities shift more towards CNY. That is a large claim, okay? China is collapsing. Their demographics are literally collapsing right now. They are in free fall. Their 70% of their household wealth is in real estate, which is also in free fall. They don't have the low-cost labor that they once did. They really don't have much. They have major heavy industry mass, like on volume, they can do that. But that's about it. You know, um, Michael Beckley, he wrote a book called Unrivaled. He's of Tufts University. And he said that if you break it down, all exports out of China are 55% U.S. inputs. So if something's 55% U.S. inputs, but it gets counted as Chinese exports, what happens when the U.S. doesn't give those inputs anymore? It's a simplistic thing to, to look at just pure export numbers. Another thing is everybody thinks that, like if you hear these commentators out there, most people will say that China is by far and away the, the dominant manufacturer in the world. But that's not the case. The U.S. is not that far behind. The U.S. out of global manufacturing, the U.S. is like 18% and China's like 22%. Not that far away. And again, what's the inputs from for the Chinese manufacturing? They're coming from U.S. sources. So yes, China has the most manufacturing output right now, but saying it's by far and away the largest superpower of manufacturing, it's not the case. Okay. Also, who buys that stuff? You know, it's like build it and they will come. No, you need demand, find supply as uh, Jack Mahlers said, demand finds supply, but supply doesn't always find demand. You need a buyer. And who's the marginal consumer of the world? The U.S. Who's the marginal throughout the entire globe? Who's the marginal consumer? It's not China. It's not Russia. It's not India. The marginal consumer is the U.S. and Western Europe. Demand finds supply, not the other way around. Okay, let's continue with this. Um, that isn't bullish for CNY. The trade math says we still don't need more CNY holdings globally, even if this happens. But that's not the point. Physical supply chains and raw uh, geopolitics are. As long as the U.S. runs huge trade deficits, this also doesn't decouple China from it, which is why you can't have a Bretton Woods 3 global system. But the aim here is a firewall for a future Russia-style crisis, which ironically may be how one is precipitated if you think like Graham Allison, okay. For other emerging economies, local FX settlement starts to deepen bilateral trade relations and corresponding asset holdings, even if it unravels more of the larger global system. It can also mean de facto barter prices in dollars as a firewall against FX volatility as many markets struggle with a soaring dollar and outright dollar shortages and no Fed swap lines ever offered. 
that some are prepared to regress trade all the way back to what prehistory wrongly taught in every economics textbook. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Let's keep going. I'm not waving a U.S. flag, but raising a red one when saying that above the above actions aren't building a new global architecture as much as a bomb underneath the current one. So what if it's very hard to actually do? The fact it's happening at all should worry markets. If some commodities aren't priced in dollars, we would get bifurcated supply chains for downstream goods and an FX clearing as in the 1930s, which China says it doesn't want to see. Of course, because China is dependent on global demand. And what happens when global demand goes away? They have all the supply with no buyers. That's the, that's the flip side of the coin here. They are extremely dependent on a globalized system. And as we deglobalize and they have demographic collapse in China, they're not set up for <laughs> to be the seat of a world reserve currency. If some commodities aren't priced in dollars, okay, I read that. If fewer dollars are earned via global trade, how are global euro dollar debts then serviced? Another good question. My view remains that the U.S. would, after a period of adjust, adjustment, thrive in a mercantilist world, but Wall Street in its present form would not. On which note, do you think the U.S. financial hegemon encircling and containing China and running a hybrid war versus Russia is going to do nothing if this FX shift really is looming at the margin? Another great question. So you think the guys with the most to lose that know the most, that have the most information on this topic, they're not hedging? We wouldn't see it in the market? We wouldn't see it in the prices, FX, anything? Ridiculous to think that. That's why... <laughs> That's why you have to see some hint in the chart to believe a story, in my opinion. Okay, as this guy also notes, quote, we should not forget that even if the switch to non-dollar pricing does not affect the U.S. economy, the U.S. will not let OPEC members slap it in the face. It will not quietly accept such an insult in front of the whole world. The dollar is a symbol of America's strength, and the U.S. will not let others disregard this symbol. OPEC members are part of the world community. Its leaders fully understand the political ramifications of pricing oil in a currency other than the dollar. And I think this is true. It has been true in the past, except, you know, the U.S. will not let others disregard the symbol. Maybe. But we're going through a big political shift here. You know, populism is rising in the U.S. It's rising in Europe. It's rising in all over the world, Japan, India. So as we have this populism rising... This is going to change. The U.S. will not let it disregard a symbol. It's a symbol of what? The U.S. global hegemony? That's not, that's not that important. The U.S. is traditionally um, a non-interventionist, isolationist type power. And so this disregarding the symbol of the U.S. dollar is not all that important. Plus, we have ultimate control over this. The market has ultimate control over this. And that is just to back the dollar by Bitcoin. Pretty simple. With this U.S. administration, that's perhaps not so clear cut. But some on Twitter are quoting the White House press secretary as saying, non-U.S. dollar settlement of global trade violates the rights of American citizens. And then he said, I can't find her saying that myself. If you still can't link commodity invoicing to stocks and bonds, 
yesterday had a Bloomberg op-ed titled, Can Powell's Fed Ignore Geopolitics? It argues the Fed must consider EM and not push rates up too high, as Volcker did. Think of EM. Now, talking about invoicing more in CNY. Conversely, the Fed can't ignore geopolitics because of what some EMs are trying to do to it, as we see via oil this week already. Hypothetically, how could the U.S. respond to all of the above if someone drew a simple diagram in CRAN for those responsible? And here's his options. One way is explosive, as Graham Allison suggests and is risk off. That's not going to happen, so let's go on to the next one. Another involves sanctions and global bifurcation, which is risk off. That's very possible. Or there are even higher U.S. interest rates for even longer, at least relative to others, which is risk off. And this is also unlikely because when you have plumbing problems, the repo problems or liquidity problems deep in the shadow banking system, you have to lower rates. You have to lower rates and do bailouts. So higher U.S. interest rates for even longer, that's not likely. The most likely outcome then out of his three is uh, sanctions and global bifurcation, which I agree, and it's risk off, but for different reasons probably than what he thinks. It's credit contraction, credit contraction. That is, those are the key words here that are totally missing from this write-up. Except we have the dilemma of weak data like the US PMI or ISM survey and the Financial Times talking about trouble brewing in shadow banking and the ECB calling for a clampdown on commercial property loans, which are a whole different problem going tick-tock because the responsible adults long took their eyes off the ball. What's the number of the global social services? So very good article here. I am going to go into the charts now real quick. Uh, I only have a few minutes left here of this live stream, but stick with me. We're going to go over the Bitcoin price. Let me get back to the website, bitcoinandmarkets.com. Uh, check me out on YouTube. I'm on Twitch, Telegram, and Twitter. Appreciate you guys listening, supporting the show, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye.